Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to draw your attention to the two ways you can support the podcast financially, and, by doing so, help this podcast continue on into the future. If you'd like to make a one-off donation, I've set up a Just Giving page where you can donate as much or as little as you like. Alternatively, there are six different levels of subscription, starting from just £5 a month over at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. There, you'll find two new podcast series, a monthly bulletin, group and personal Zoom meetings, articles, mini-episodes attached to this series, and the chance to have some conducting lessons from myself. The details are in the show notes below, and I'd greatly appreciate any help you can manage. Today, I conduct a conversation with a young British conductor who won the 2017 Nestle and Salzburg Festival Young Conductors Award. He regularly guest conducts with orchestras all across the globe, as well as being a chief conductor with his orchestra in Austria. It's a great pleasure to welcome Kerem Hassan. Kerem, wonderful to speak to you today. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Real pleasure. Um, What's lockdown been like for you? Um, Have you been working at all? Have you, like me, just suddenly stopped looking at scores because there's no deadline? What have you been up to? Well, I mean, I think it changed um, over a couple of months, actually. I, I, to begin with, I did absolutely nothing. I just mm. thought I wanted a break anyway from scores, from music. Um, so I didn't really listen to that much music. I certainly didn't open my scores for a while. And I just, I, I pursued other endeavours, whether that was, you know, reading or going for walks or, you know, what have you. Um, but then after a while, I kind of got a little bit of an itch. So then started <laughs> to pick up scores here and there and yeah. everything like that. Um, but it's it's strange because obviously um, we prepare for things which may or may not happen given yeah. even the fluidity of the situation. Um, so yes, studying somewhat, but not consistently, I'd say. Mm, yeah, uh, much the same here. Uh, I've realised I'm a deadline-driven sort of person and now there are some deadlines looming. I'm happily back to pencils and scores and learning again and listening. Uh, yeah, I like you. I didn't listen to any music at all really, um, for the first two or three months. Whilst we're talking about music, uh, do you come from a musical family? What's uh, music like when you grew up? How did it start? Um, what, you know, what got you into it? Absolutely no musicians in my family. Uh, my father is a barber and mm-hmm. my mum, uh, well, she's trained to be a lawyer, well, when I was about 15, 16, um, and I, otherwise she kind of stayed at home and kind of brought me up. Um, music at home was, it was funny because I, I, I started on the piano and was, um, I, I think I took to it quite well and had a very, very supportive piano teacher. I mean, with parents that were not involved in music at all, um, they just pretty much went along with what my wonderful teacher said, which was, you know, make sure he does some practice because you know, there's, there's, there's potential for this one. Um, and my father has, well, I have to be honest, absolutely no interest in classical music. He loves Iron Maiden, Dream Theatre, and so <laughs> I would kind of uh, come in Friday, Saturday evenings uh, into the living room, and on the on the hi-fi system, there was all of this Iron Maiden blaring out. Um, so it's a little bit eclectic in that way. I yeah. mean, I there was no real classical music being performed other than, you know, by me kind of tinkling the ivories really yeah well I, I don't think that's a bad thing i mean obviously i've spoken to previous conductors who've come from a very classically based background you know in my house it was cliff richard johnny mathis barry manlow that <laughs> that sort of stuff was happening and the more i started playing my sort of music learning the violin classical music started to appear because there was an interest in it um but yeah i don't think it's a bad thing at all yeah I think it was definitely quite organic uh, yeah. in, that, in that way. I mean, I think my, my love of classical music grew from simply my love of classical music and not because mm. well, there was anyone else who was, who was doing it and I felt obliged or interested in doing it that way. So it was an interesting way to get into it, yeah. Mm. And the piano was your instrument throughout. Did you dabble in it any... It was. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Um, I mean, I, 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 in some ways I wish I, wish I had... Um, and obviously being uh, a pianist has its advantages and disadvantages, especially yeah. obviously when it comes to working with orchestras. Um, but I, I went more into working with singers actually yeah. um, at a, a kind of youngish age. Um, 
And I think combining that love of working with singers well, on the piano and coaching them and then kind of going into conducting felt more, uh, more natural for me anyway. So it was kind of approaching the orchestra, but maybe from the opposite direction. Yeah, say. Well, that's fair enough. Uh, and so through school and then on to further studies, um, I read at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow and in piano and conducting or, or did the conducting come later? No, you know, it was, um, I was so glad I went up to the um, RCS in Glasgow. They're such a magnificent institution because I did, I did the rounds, um, you know, for many places in, in mm. the UK in terms of auditions. And I obviously auditioned mainly as a, obviously as a pianist, um, you know, and so many of these music colleges turned around to me. And after I expressed an interest in conducting at the age of about 17, um, they all said, you know, we prefer our conductors to make their own opportunities. And really, <laughs> Glasgow was the only place I went to. And they turned around and said, if you're that interested in it, then we'll help you out and see what we can do for you. And um, me and there was another uh, young student with a first cohort of these kind of joint study instrument and conducting undergraduates. And so, yeah. you know, at the age of 18, um, rocking up to to the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland and you know being thrown into preparation rehearsals for Marla I think it was Marla 6 I mean things that you would I would I probably wouldn't even do now to be honest mm. uh, and just going you know being thrown straight into those but you know all fantastic experience yeah and had you done any conducting at all before then well I'd done bits and pieces. I was a Saturday student at the Junior Royal Academy in London. And it was there that I met and got to work a lot with um, the wonderful teacher, Peter Stark, mm. who is the professor of conducting at the Royal College of Music, but he kind of taught at the weekends at the RAM. And it was there that I really developed an interest in conducting. Um, but I, I think my real interest in conducting began just a little bit earlier after I did my work experience um, for two weeks at the English National Opera and the uh, Royal Opera House. Yeah. Um, and that came about totally by chance because, uh, I mean, I, I don't know, for, for the listeners, listeners who aren't completely aware of um, work experience, you know, just to spend a couple of weeks um, shadowing people in a profession that you think you might be interested in is pretty normal at the age of 16. Yes. And there was nothing for me to do. I mean, I was playing the piano, you know, friends of mine were going off to, I don't know, banks and dentists and doctors and things like that. Um, and I thought, you know, what does, a, what does a pianist do? But as it happened, the then um, head of casting, uh, her daughter attended the same high school as me. And so she quite kindly said, well, if you want to come and shadow, please, by all means. So I spent a wonderful two weeks um, shadowing Ed Gardner and Tony Papano at uh, <laughs> wow. ENO and uh, the Royal Opera, um, yeah. which was wonderful and really just kind of lit the fire of conducting for me. That's, that's a, a wonderful uh, work experience week, you know. Um, one, one wonders sometimes when these people go into an orchestra on work experience, what, whether they're just stood in the corner, you know, um, licking envelopes to send out to patrons or to uh, subscribers <laughs> or whatever. But that sounds like a wonderful way of... Of, of experiencing uh, an opera house and to follow yeah. those two that's a great thing um back to glasgow i'm assuming at this point the the head of the course was gary walker um and uh, no not gary no, walker it no, wasn't gary walker <laughs> <laughs> oh well um, I did work closely with Gary for a, a few years, actually. But when yeah. I first joined, he was a, a regular guest, right. um, as, as it were. Uh, no, I, I, I studied with um, a wonderful uh, Scottish conductor called Alistair Mitchell, right. um, who has worked for a very long time up at the Royal Conservatoire and was, was kind of gave me the grounding that I needed. Uh, and what was his... Because um, I, I don't think it's a name that's cropped up before. What was his style... Um, if you think that uh, a Moosin student, a lot of it was on stick technique, whereas a Hans Swarovski student, uh, as we're told, you know, Abado and Mater had about 10 minutes of stick technique and the rest of it was about score study. What was the balance, do you think, with uh, Alistair Mitchell? Well, I would say it was, it was, there was a lot of talking involved in, in the yeah. good sense. Um, yes. And it was really talking and trying to understand, you know, what it actually means to be a conductor. Mm. Um, of course, there was stick technique and, it, you know, just in terms of how to give a, a cue 
to a, a particular section or, you know, various habits that we might develop um, when we're younger, well, even now, to be honest. Um, but there was definitely a lot of talking about the kind of psychology of, of working with a big group of people, mm. um, you know, what they need from you, not just in terms of how you move, but in terms of how you talk, how you present yourself. And obviously that leads into discussions about um, scores and, and all the various subjects that are attached to that. So very broad minded, I would say. At the end of your time in Glasgow, or was it one of these Erasmus years, um, you ended up going to the University of Music, Franz Liszt in Weimar. Um, again, were you piano and conducting, or by now had the piano taken a, uh, a backward step? Well, by that time, I was still playing piano to a very, very high level, um, mm. but I knew that I wanted to do conducting. And so my time in Germany for those six months, and it was that wonderful, wonderful scheme, Erasmus, mm. um, which was to, to study for a semester in a, you know, in a university of your choice, mm. um, was, was fantastic. And, it, you know, I'd never worked um, in Germany. I'd never worked with German-speaking teachers or in that culture that is very much based around the opera house mm. um, and the Kapellmeister system and that was totally new to me and so you know aside from doing an A-level in German which I'd promptly forgotten two years <laughs> later I had to try and pick up German as quickly as possible um, and you know going to somewhere like Weimar which is you know deeply it was drenched in German culture mm. um, but you know, nobody really spoke English in that part of Germany, which is, you know, very far to the east. Um, it was it was a it was a fascinating, but a slightly scary experience, if I'm honest, because mm. I just felt completely out of my depth. There were these other conductors there who were way more advanced than me. Um, you know, there were conductors who had whose careers were just kicking off as I was arriving. And I would, you know, read about them conducting, you know, the XYZ orchestra and thinking, my God, that's fantastic. I want to do that. Um, but realizing that I had such a long way to go. Um, and I think in some ways that's really useful because being um, a small fish in a big pond makes you work. And I, I worked so hard for those six months. Mm. Um, also because I did my Erasmus in the winter semester. So it was freezing when I was there it dropped down to minus 15 or something like that and you know you simply couldn't go out anywhere so you just had to study your scores and, and were you conducting piano classes was that individual one-to-one -one lessons did you have an ensemble you could conduct whilst you were there um it, it was as far as I remember it was a really broad mixture the opportunity to work with very big ensembles um came once or twice a semester but there was a regular option of conducting a smaller ensemble you know I think it was a string quartet or something like that every now and again but otherwise the work that um, Nicholas Pasquet who is the professor there does um, is quite unique in terms of conducting classes and they conduct in silence um, they don't use any pianists they don't use for the most part any ensembles everything is done in silence so you'll stand up on the podium the teacher will be opposite along with you know five six seven of your colleagues and you'll go from the beginning of the movement mm. and just conduct as if the orchestra's there. You'll hear it in your head. They might hear it in there and they'll hopefully hear it in their heads. Yeah. And it's a very, very interesting way. Certainly one that I've never done since um, in, in, in terms of studying. Yeah. Uh, really fascinating way of working because it really forces you to, to, to hear the music in your head. Yeah. You know, it's not the kind of work that you can play a recording and go along to that or rely on the orchestra to, to, to just play the right notes. You really have to know everything. Yeah. And so for that was really fascinating, I have to say. I, I find that fascinating. It's not a, a process or a way of teaching I've ever heard of before. Um, it's something we can all do in our the privacy of our own studies with the score open you know, whether you're actually waving your arms around or not, is forming this soundtrack of the piece in your own brain. But to actually do it in front of other people, that seems, that's where, the, for me, the weirdness comes in. But then if, you, if you're sitting there observing, I suppose what you're doing is you're getting a, you're, you are seeing what the conductor wants. You're seeing 
the, their interpretation. You're seeing the tempo that they want. It's not driven by two pianists who, who are or aren't watching you. And it's not driven by the ability of the orchestra that you might be conducting at that student level. It's purely about the fantasy of what's in your own head. Um, exactly. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. It, it, might sound, it might sound quite strange to say, actually, but the number of times I remember sitting in the room and... <laughs> Again, it might sound a little strange, and thinking that it's it's getting loud in here in some ways, you know, but loud in your head because yeah. you know we would, um, you know, kind of mute as it were, mute conduct, you know, Brahms symphonies, big Beethoven symphonies, um, and so as as you said quite rightly, the 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 ability to hear yourself as clearly as possible, everything that you've studied, I think is is a real advantage. Mm, that's brilliant. Uh, I may well be stealing some of that. <laughs> well, whether I'll steal all of it from my students, I don't know, but I may, I may steal some of it. Um, and then on Zurich University of the Arts, and to a name that I have heard of, but I don't think he's appeared on this podcast, the reason why I've heard of Johannes Schleffley, Schleffley? Johannes, Absolutely. Johannes Schleffley, is because he taught Mirga Grajanita Tila, who is the music director of CBSO. Um, and what was Johannes like? Um, I don't know much about his teaching style. I just know of his name because of the connection with Mirga. What does his teaching style involve? Uh, he is um, by far one of the most um, wonderful people that I've met. And I, I would say probably the biggest influence on me because I did spend a good three years, three and a half years working with him. Yeah. Um, it kind of, in order to tell you what he's like as a teacher, I just need to tell you what it's like studying in Zurich um, because that was a, a brilliant experience in of itself. So when I started back in 2014, 15, I think this was, yes, 14, 15, um, they had just built a brand new building for the students. And because it's the Zurich University of the Arts, the, they brought together all these different um, yeah, kind of areas of art. So whether that's photography uh, students or whether those are the dancers and then all, of course, the musicians, um, absolutely phenomenal facilities. Um, you know, dozens and dozens of, of practice rooms, a whole basement floor with, you know, thousands of square feet dedicated just to practice rooms, really fantastic. On top of that, we had the ability to work every single week for three hours with a string quintet and a wind quartet mm. and two pianos with that you can do pretty much any repertoire yeah, yeah. within reason and that was our laboratory um we would work there and we would work towards regular appearances with or master classes i should say with orchestras in central and eastern europe for the most part sometimes yeah. southern germany as well um where we would go for a week at a time, we would have you know three days of rehearsing the orchestra and a concert at the end. And it was working like that for three years, four years. I mean, it, it was extremely intensive um, and extremely time consuming. You know, there is no time to do anything else because there's always the next project coming yeah. up. Yeah. Um, to get to Johannes's style of teaching, I should probably say that none of his students, or ex-students for that matter, look the same in terms of their conducting. Yeah. Um, as the technique that he has, because for the most part, he never really conducted um, anything for mm. us. And so everything was about getting into the psychology of conducting and about talking and watching yourself back and trying to, in a way, it's a bit like therapy. Um, <laughs> you know, you talk yourself into your solutions a lot yeah. of the time. And he would just very gently nudge you in the right direction. So, Everything was recorded, um, including these three-hour ensembles that we would have every week. And every other, let's say every two weeks, I think it was, there would also be one-to-one -one sessions where we would spend an hour watching our videos back in a one-to-one -one format um, and commenting. Also in groups, we'd often do this on yeah. what we could do better and what didn't go so well and what we thought was very good. And if there was one thing that Johannes promoted, and he still promotes to this day, I have to say, it is a uh, really... Um, amicable atmosphere in the class yeah. we work together no one is competing and i have to say in comparison to other studios that i've seen uh, it's not always the way so mm. the one thing that we were all that was always drilled into us kind of subconsciously in a way was 
you are always free to comment on each other's conducting and provide constructive criticism. And that not only paves the way you know, to getting better as a musician and as a conductor, but also allows you to stand up in front of an orchestra and be prepared for feedback from an orchestra yes. because yeah. you know sometimes it doesn't always go to plan and people might say that we could do things better and so it allows us to move our egos to one side and just work on what it is we need to do which is getting the music to a standard that is going to be you know what the composer wanted eventually yeah. well yeah. it also gives you the chance to musically listen to what's coming back at you from the orchestra and think hey actually that's a better idea than what i thought um and as you say if you leave your ego to one side and and accept what comes at you you know that, that that's a wonderful thing um that sounds that sounds like a really intensive yet enjoyable three or four years of study um it was and, it was absolutely fantastic i have to say and yeah. uh, just to just to finish off with that you know the um the, the the work ethic of everyone in that class and it still continues in this way it's just it's so focused and and dedicated because i think everyone who studies there also realizes how lucky they are to have those kind of opportunities yeah. um as well because you know it's not cheap to hire orchestras and certainly not cheap to hire orchestras three or four times a semester as well mm. Well, the other thing I was going to focus in on is the is the use of video. I use video where possible when I teach, um, mainly down to my experiences with Yorma Panala, and he's another one who uses video, um, almost exclusively in a group scenario where we all you all sit and watch the the video back. And he d he never used to comment often, but when he commented on anybody's video, you're all sit sitting and watching and thinking, right, what's he going to say next? Um, I do remember the last two words he said to me in my last video session with him, which you know was of the concert where I'd conducted the last two movements of Shostakovich's First Symphony, and stopped, and he just turned around and said, "Yes, almost professional," and I, which, I, <laughs> which I took as a compliment. Um, but, but by then, I you know I was already getting professional work, but I took that as a compliment. Um, but yeah, I mean those video sessions are illuminating, and and I think what it does, and I, hopefully you'll agree with me, is it frees up when you're actually conducting, whether it's the, the quintet and the quartet or, or a bigger ensemble, it frees you up to concentrate on the job in hand and you're not thinking about technical things. It's the same as a, a, you know, a golfer shouldn't be thinking about what he's doing with his left wrist when he's about to drive down the first fairway of the US Open. He should yep. just be thinking hit the ball um, you know, and, and think about the course. And it's the same when you're conducting. You shouldn't be worried about what, you know, what your second beat in three looks like Absolutely. or you know, your posture or what you're doing with your legs. You deal with that afterwards with the, with the video. I mean, I think one, it, it's interesting. I mean, I've definitely kept in, in, in touch a lot with, with Johannes since I, I finished studying there. And you know, sometimes I might call him up and I'll, I'll say, you know, I've got this project coming up. Um, I, I, I think, I mean, or I might actually call him up in the middle of a week and say, this has happened so far. And I, you know, what, what, what shall I do? Or how does, I don't know what to do next. Or um, can I have some advice about what you might think on this? And a lot of the time he says, you know, just trust your instincts, yeah. you know, forget everything. You know, you've studied all of this and you're absolutely right. That is why those video sessions take place. We do them in order to forget them, to put them to a part of our mind where we don't need to focus on that at the time. And the overarching theme that conductors, I think, should be having in a week of orchestral concerts is how are we rehearsing and how is that trajectory from the first rehearsal to the concert improving or, or, or yes. we hope to be improving. Yeah. And that was actually a huge focus in our conversations as well, is how do you rehearse an orchestra? and what what is a good rehearsal um <laughs> what defines a good rehearsal mm. and that is a really really hard question to answer because so many orchestras work differently or expect different things from their conductors or their mm. guest conductors or their chief conductors even um but i think the one overarching idea is ultimately that the conductor is serving the music and yes. you know I, it's, it's certainly something that we hear time and time again but it is so true and that is orchestras can sniff out egos very very quickly and mm. they can also smell somebody who's not being genuine yeah. um, and so i think if you come from a place which is sincere humble honest and very very true to the score then it stands you in good stead um of course there's you know a fair bit more to that but 
I think that's a really, really important thing to discuss when, when studying conducting. Looking ahead, I mean, obviously, having spent three years with Johannes, um, if I just pick out some names, you know, you worked with Robert Spano in Aspen um, for a couple of years, I think, but also masterclasses with David Zinman, Ada Devart, Jan Andrea Nozeda, Esa Pekka Salomon. Were those five names or so, when you encountered them and they gave you bits of advice in masterclasses and sessions at Aspen, were they just like the icing on top of the cake of what you'd learned from Janus and, and back further at the RCS? Or did they, any of them give you something that suddenly made you change uh, uh, maybe an opinion of a part of conducting or whatever? Yeah. Um, do you know what I mean? Because often yeah, we absolutely. get bombarded with advice um, and, and, and it's difficult to know which way to go, especially if it's contradictory advice. Yeah. Well, I don't think... I mean, I have to say there weren't any huge paradigm shifts in, <laughs> in, in a way. Yeah. Um, but I think all of those conductors are incredibly unique. And, and in some ways, when you, when you spend three years studying in one place and you think you develop an idea of what conducting means or what it's like um, or what it should be like, I should say, and then you come across somebody who does something completely differently mm. um, in a way and achieves phenomenal results and you think, well, that, that, that doesn't quite compute with exactly what I thought it should be like. Um, and I, what I mean is that obviously everyone has very different personalities and those personalities shine through in rehearsals, in their technique and things like that. I mean, um, I can think of some conductors, you know, who talk a lot in their yeah. rehearsals um, and somehow it works for them. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are some conductors who barely say two words and it works equally well. And so I think having the opportunity to, you know, work with assist or take masterclasses from, you know, these names that you mentioned simply opened my eyes um, probably to two things that firstly, everyone is different. And secondly, yeah. you have to find your own way of doing it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, in some ways I saw conductors that I absolutely adore and think to myself, well, I would love to be like that. But ultimately, I'm not like that. That's yeah. not my personality. And I can't pretend to be like that. No, uh, yeah. it's absolutely and, right. I think it seems to be a, a very common thread on most of the conductors who come on here. doesn't matter what their journey is. Uh, and the, and uh, obviously, the journeys have been so vastly different in 50-odd <laughs> 50, 50 episodes. Is that, you know, at the end, most, virtually all of the of conductors have said, you've got to be yourself and you've got to work out what works for you. And, and I think that, you know, that's what the successful ones have done is they've worked that out. Um, yeah. The problem is with that is that ultimately there is a, a, a difficulty in that. I mean, one of the reasons that I, I started conducting in the first place is because I really wanted to work with other people rather than mm. sit as a pianist by myself in a practice room. I mean, in reality, I didn't realize that I'd be sitting by myself with it in front of a desk instead of a piano. You know, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. Just <laughs> Um, but I mean, ultimately, I think when we try to learn or to get comfortable in front of orchestras, get comfortable in being ourselves in front of groups of people, there is no substitute for being in front of those groups um, mm. to do that. And so the only way that you can do that is through a sometimes brutal trial and error. Yeah. Um, and that's why, you know, at the beginning of your career as a younger conductor, I think it's incredibly important to find the right kind of opportunities um, with, with orchestras. Yeah. Um, and in, in order to feel like you're in a slightly safer space um, with an orchestra that is understanding that you, you, know, you are younger and that's not always the case. And so of course we want to be ourselves. Um, but on the other hand, how do we get that experience? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's a tricky one. It is a very tricky one. Um, one way that con some conductors sort of burst onto the scene is competitions and um, i know for, i know for a fact that you entered one at least because you were a finalist in the donatella flick um what are your thoughts on competitions was it always a plan to enter them did you enjoy them uh, despite the sort of competitive element especially having been in johannes's class whether as you said it was he actively encouraged not being competitive what did you find the whole experience like and did you do you think that 
that it was a help or or a hindrance you know uh, i i'm very happy that i by the time i started conducting seriously i was 35 which meant i was too old to enter any competitions <laughs> uh, i'm very glad about that um yeah but yeah what was it like what are they like i mean the if, if I speak completely candidly, I absolutely despise competitions. I mm. think that they are a necessary evil, um, but they're not the only way in order no. to develop a career. And that should be said from the outset. They're a, a some, they can be a faster way, but they are inherently dangerous as well, because um, I think a lot of the time people don't realize what is involved if you do have any success in a competition. Yeah. Yeah. Um, certainly when I entered my first competition I've only ever done two in my life I entered the Donatella flick back in 2016 um, I had no expectations because I'd never entered a competition um, I was extremely nervous extraordinarily nervous uh, from the first round and although I might be quite good at um, seeming calm when I'm on the podium certainly beforehand it was you know ex extremely nerve-wracking I didn't know what to expect you know mm. um, and even from logistical elements of a competition like having jury members sitting behind the orchestra watching you i mean goodness me you know you're talking to a first, <laughs> first violin section and suddenly you see yuri Temirkanov sitting behind them and you think oh goodness what am i saying the right thing have i even said what i should be should i have even stopped you know yeah. um so in, in that respect they it was hard work um yeah. and no one i think no one enjoys the competitions um, of course, you know, getting the opportunity to work with the London Symphony and, you know, they, they were extremely nice, um, extremely kind, um, because they recognize that, you know, the three finalists are younger and yeah. have less experience and will make mistakes. Um, but they were so supportive and I think that made all the difference. And certainly, um, in a competition like the Donatella flick, which is, is so well run and so well prepared, you know, where you do have a final concert in the end. You know, you have a concert with the London Symphony in the Barbican, which is yeah. shared between three finalists. I think the best way of looking at that is simply for what it is, a concert. Yes. Um, and to just do your best as you would. Um, so it was, it was hard work. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, and I, I wish there were other ways um, to, <laughs> to go about developing a conducting career that are quicker, uh, yes. like competitions are. Um, but un unfortunately, there are not because there is another side to conducting, um, which I'm, I'm not sure how how much it's spoken about. Or you've spoken about um, with your other guests, um, but there can be a lot of politics in what we do. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that are being able to sell yourself in the right way, um, and also, you know, being a flavor of the month or yeah, something yeah. like that. It's, it can be a very, very uh, brutal world, if I'm honest. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, I do think that competitions play into that or can play into that because what comes afterwards, you have to be ready for, which is a huge amount of publicity and attention. And actually one of the best pieces of advice that I had after having been a finalist um, in the Donatella flick was learn to say no. Mm. It was, that these opportunities come at you thick and fast and that you have to be prepared to know what your limit is. Um, you know, at the same time, you don't want to be overcautious with everything, but it's a big world out there and there are a lot of different orchestras. Um, and so knowing what is best, knowing who you can really trust, who you can confide in, um, it, it's, it's, it's rare that you can really find someone that you trust. And I mean, from colleagues or managers or you yeah. know, something like that. Um, but that is also a crucial part, which also tie, you know, ties together with the element of competitions. Well, I, I think this is um, the, some of the advice that have come from competition winners or finalists or um, in these podcasts. You know, th this we're recording this episode in September, just after the Mark Wigglesworth episode came out, and he told tells told everybody that. He basically said no to all of the work that was offered him after winning because he realised that just because he'd won didn't make him a great conductor. He still had things to learn and he didn't want to be put up on that pedestal too soon. Ryan Bancroft uh, said when he'd won his competition, you know, don't enter these things without being fully aware of what it's going to be like afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they all talk about needing a shoulder to lean on, cry on, 
Um, you know, whether that be a manager or an agent or a, a confidant within the profession, um, I think you're absolutely right because you are going to be the flavor of the month, the next big thing, the whatever cliched phrase you can think of. What, the minute you win that competition, everybody would be looking at, at you and, and, and that's the dangerous time and, and not to think, well, I'm the next, I'm the next greatest thing. You know, yeah, that, that's the time to get your feet firmly on the ground and go, right, no, now what do I do with this? Um, exactly. Yeah. Sudden publicity. And, and, and suddenly going from um, weeks with uh, kind of orchestras, which were masterclass and concert at the end to suddenly being a guest conductor by yourself for the week, um, you know, and which involves, well, unless you know people in the city, but it can involve, you know, three meals a day by yourself. Um, mm. Absolutely no one giving you any feedback. No one is telling you whether your rehearsal went well. No one is telling you where the orchestra are playing um, at, a, you know, at the very best that they can. Um, you know, being all by yourself and having to rely on your own training and your own instincts, that is hard work. And I think actually, you know, primary um to uh these competitions that is where the hard work really begins yes well that was going to be my next topic um guesting and you've sort of already said what it's like and and honestly what it's like as well and for those who are completely in the dark about how it works is that having done your first week with the xyz symphony orchestra uh, wherever that may be you might not find out from your agent or manager what they thought of you for anywhere between two weeks to six months. Um, so, you know, that's always playing in the back of your head, even though you might think the concert was a roaring success, and, but you, you don't know what the orchestra thinks of you because of the, you know, it's the rehearsals that the orchestra are also involved with and a lion's share of what their opinion will be based on how you rehearsed and how you got them to that concert. And you can be sitting in this limbo land waiting for all of this information for months um yeah. and you won't know until the, the phone rings your agent and says we really enjoyed that can we book him again for next year <laughs> that you won't know um and that yeah that and you do that week after week after week um at yeah. the beginning when your career first starts and that's that's tough because all you're playing all sorts of mental games inside of your head i mean so you know some weeks you you can feel well you know when we come on to you your your job in uh, Innsbruck with the Tyrol Tyrola Symphony Orchestra that was obviously a week that went very well but that there's also, also there are weeks that don't go well I've had that's them, all, that's yeah. that's also the case and I think it's yeah. really really important to focus on those because mm. we are only ever I mean I say publicly but we are only ever you know if things are officially published only going to hear about the successes yes we don't hear about the ones that didn't um, the weeks that didn't go well or something like that and you know there's make no mistake every single conductor has had bad weeks with an orchestra there is yeah. not one yeah. of the greatest conductors that you can ever think of there is not one that hasn't had a bad week with an orchestra mm. um, but I think the real kind of aim amongst that is to recognize what was it that didn't go according to plan. Mm. Um, and the, 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 the hardest situation I think to realize is where this, the chemistry between you and the orchestra simply isn't there because no matter how quote unquote, you know, good you are or how well you rehearse or even the results that you produce in the end, Ultimately, you're working with people and it's a people's relationship in order to produce that music that is very important. And so if there isn't that chemistry between you and the orchestra, you know, it's like being on a date with somebody. If, it, if you think, oh, it's just not working out, then it just doesn't work out. Sometimes yeah. you can't really explain it. Yeah. Um, and you just have to accept that. Um, but that's also sometimes difficult to accept because we obviously want to do as well as we can all yes. the time. Um, mm. You know, we are preparing these wonderful works of music, um, sometimes with wonderful orchestras, and we want them to be a great success. And when it's not, we have to ask these hard questions as to why it happened. Yes, and, and, and also for the listener, you know that often these concerts are reviewed afterwards. And let me tell you, dear listener, whatever the reviewer wrote, often it has nothing to do with how your week <laughs> went with the orchestra. You know. Um, I've had really bad reviews for a wonderful week and I've had one really good reviews for a week where I thought, well, really, where did you get that from? You know? Um, and, uh, yeah. It, uh, the, and the, the other interesting thing is when I was a player, you know, I was on an artistic committee and we would review every conductor 
And uh, when the chief executive says to you, but he got a wonderful review and the audience seemed to really enjoy it. You have to say, well, yeah, that was despite what was going on in the rehearsals, you know, that, and that, that happens. You know, and, and it, but it's, it's such an important subject for anybody who wants to think about being a conductor is knowing that it's not all wine and roses. And sometimes things, things just don't work. And as you say, yeah. you know, it doesn't it, you try as hard as you like. Sometimes you have to walk away and go, fine. Okay, yeah, there, 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 no, it doesn't work. But, as I said, at some point you went to the Tiroler Symphony Orchestra in Innsbruck and it must have worked because from 2019 onwards you've been their chief conductor. Um, what was that like? Was that a... Was that a love at first sight speed date um, thing, or you know, did you gently fall each other in love with each other over a number of dates? Well, it was it was interesting. We had um, I my my first experience with them was in the um, in the concert hall, not in the opera pit, because they are also an opera orchestra. Yeah. Um, and I was actually stepping in for a colleague who was sick or happened to be sick. You know, um, I, I think about a week's notice or something like that. And um, it was it, it was great repertoire. It was a, a Verdi uh, Force of Destiny overture, a Mozart piano concerto uh, with Salim Ashkar, fantastic pianist, and Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony. Mm. Um, and I, you know, as a young conductor, I was fortunate in that I'd done two of the three works. I'd done the symphony before and I'd done the overture. And yeah. so I thought, this is great. You know, I'm, I, I feel at least confident with the um, repertoire. I had no idea what I was walking into. Obviously, you don't know what the orchestra are going to be like. Um, but in the end, we had two phenomenal concerts. Um, they were a highlight for me of the season, and I hope they were also a highlight for the mm -hmm. orchestra. But um, as part of their hiring process, they also wanted, um, and this is really interesting, they wanted their con potential chief conductors um, to step into the opera pit and mm. conduct opera. And so, and this is very much a Austro-German, Swiss uh, element of um, working in the opera house. Um, they do these things called Nachtdirigats, which are essentially after conducting. So, you know, after the um, show has started and you're maybe on performance number six or seven, another conductor will come in often the evening before, meet with the singers on the day and go and conduct the opera cold that evening. Mm. Um, and so we were given a, a list of operas that we can conduct um, to choose from. I chose um, Tales of Hoffman um, by Offenbach and I just, I mean, I, I basically got the video of what the production looked like on stage so I could at least see where the singers were coming from. Um, but I had no warm up, you know, no one has any warm up for that. You just go in and conduct this three and a half hour long opera. And, you know, that that must have gone well, because um, a few months later, we got the phone call to say that, you know, they'd very much like you to, to, to work as the chief conductor. So um, if I have to say one of the more nerve-wracking experiences was doing that um, yes. because it's one thing to work with an orchestra and with all due love and respect it's also another thing to work with singers because mm. singers have so many other things to think about on top of just the music and it's very easy for us listeners or musicians to see simply hear what they're doing but I mean you know playing with props and often uh, directors asking you to hang upside down while sitting <laughs> in this it can be extremely problematic and complicated. Yes. And so I think as an opera conductor, you need to have a level of empathy and understanding with the singers yeah. um, in order to kind of bring out the best in them. Yeah. And of course, I mean, rehearsing singers, that's completely another subject. Um, but essentially it was this three and a half hours uh, conducting Offenbach's Tales of Hoffman, as well as a symphony orchestra concert. And they are very kind enough uh, to offer me the job. Wonderful. Um, I've always thought that those um, sort of opera gigs, uh, you know, Andres Nelson's told me about, you know, going in for the first time at the Vienna State Opera and doing a one-off Lab OM. But then he'd been, you know, music director of the Latvian National Opera. So he'd, he'd done his own Lab OM. He'd probably done 50 or 60 performances of it. Um, I always thought that that was purely the, the sort of the world of the opera conductor who, who did that. But that, yeah, that sounds like a frightening experience. Um, 
but a challenge. I, and you know, I would never be put off by something like that. Having done a couple of operas, mm. that sounds like fun uh, in a sort of sadistic way. It, but it is, you know. Yeah, you're right about the singers. Yeah, that that with the orchestra in particular, that you know, you, you can deal with orchestras. It, it's dealing with the the singers and the props and what you know uh, what they're supposed to be, what the directors have got them doing. That's mm. the tough thing. It's it's absolutely and in in an opera production it is it's learning where your place is because I think at the very beginning of the opera rehearsal process the role of the conductor is less important um, to what it is much later on in the process yeah. um, so of course at the beginning you know you give the place and the space to the director to you know to lay out their plans I mean I, at least I try and be as open as I can. I want to know what it is they have planned for this opera. Mm. Um, and of course, as things go away, I might kind of gently or not so gently have to say, no, we can't do this, or this might not be possible, or that's a great idea. Um, but, you know, to try and work in a very collaborative way and, and, and join that together with the music making, that's, that's the fun in opera, I would mm. say. That's, that is a hugely rewarding experience. It, it, it is making me chuckle though because there's this famous Beecham story which I'm sure you know about the soprano um, trying to deliver her aria whilst lying on a chaise long and eventually she said oh, but Sir Thomas I can't perform in this position to which his riposte was my dear I've given some of my best performances in that position <laughs> and, uh, not very PC in this current climate but you know that's Thomas Beecham for you but they're the sort of things that directors ask singers to do, you know, to sing yeah. whilst lying prone on a chaise long, or as you say, hanging upside down, or in a cherry picker crane, um, you know, 50 feet above the pit, or whatever it is. They're <laughs> the sort of crazy things that we end up doing. Absolutely. I've asked every conductor this, and you will be no different. When you come to learn a new score, do you have a, especially because you're a pianist, do you have a, a set system? Do you use a piano to learn a new score, or do you do... The other version, which is the, to sit in silence and learn the soundtrack that way. Do you start at the beginning and work your way through, or do you flick through and then go zoom in, zoom in? And are you a scribbler? Do you scribble on your scores? Do you use pens, pencils, uh, or do you, are you one of these lucky people who like to keep the score completely virginal and not make a single mark? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> unfortunately, I I scribble all over the score, and well, don't um, say I was, unfortunately, I do as well. I, th I think. <laughs> I think it helps me learn it personally. Um, I, I, I think it does. I'm still not sure if it actually does or if I just feel I need to do something to, to, to you know, give the impression that I'm learning it. I'm still <laughs> not quite sure which one it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually just picked up, um, it was a, a couple of weeks ago now. I, I don't know why I was flicking through it, but I picked up my score of Beethoven 4. And this was the piece that I conducted um, when I was awarded first prize in the Salzburg Young Conductors Award. Mm. And... I can barely read the notes. I mean, there are so many sticky notes that I've, you know, kind of torn out and cut out and put here, there and everywhere. Yeah. And I thought, my God, how did I even read the music? Um, I do make a conscientious effort to, to write less in the score. Um, but to answer your question, it actually just depends on how much time I have to learn it. Let's, mm. I mean, if we talk about an ideal world, I would say I like to kind of do the full shebang, which is start actually without the score to begin with and just start and do a history of what's what that music's about um, yes, and often yeah. i'll write kind of notes and pages of a4 to myself on the notebooks um, and i'll just write to myself what was happening at that time in the composer's life what came before what came after what were the influences and just trying to get into the i you know the the, the world of what was happening at the time um because of course that does influence interpretation later on um i try and work in a methodical way at the beginning um i think i have a pretty methodical method which is a a you know an analysis to an extent i try i, I don't do a musicologist's analysis of the work uh, but I will try and work out exactly what's happening, where the structures, harmonies, things like that. Um, and, you know, that gives you a, a mental picture of what the, you know, what the playing field actually looks like. Um, then purely aesthetically, I mark in um, kind of phrase lengths, bar lengths, things like that. And then I essentially work from bigger to smaller. So yeah. when I start on, you know, the big movements, I'll then try and focus on the smaller aspects and then I'll try and work on that phrase. Um, but it, it, it's hard because... Um, obviously a lot of most of what we do is, is a very mental process yeah. and so 
you're not, you know, you're not working with spreadsheets or um, you're not working with, you know, emails. You can't just put things in folders so easily. So sometimes, you know, you do get carried away. And while I might have wanted to spend the past hour, um, you know, working uh, on an analysis of this particular part of the movement, you know, I end up conducting it through um, mm. physically because I just, you know, I felt like it. So it, I try and be methodical where I can. Um, the process is always changing. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I've been in situations where I've had to jump in with orchestras with works that I have never heard before. Yeah. And um, this is where I am very, very fortunate that we live in the day and age of recording and digital, you know, digital sound, because that is a huge help if it needs to be. Um, certainly, yes. I don't learn uh, a score in that way. Uh, many people have said the same, even if it's uh, you know, a big symphony that they've never conducted that it's good to go back and listen to historical recordings. Um, and also of your contemporaries. Um, I spoke to somebody very recently who said, you know, often they'd listen to a recording and thought, do you know what, that's a brilliant idea. Um, why hadn't I thought of that? Yeah. Um, but not to steal, but just to, you know, to inform yourself with, with what's out there. Um, yeah. And I mean, also, also we, video sorry. as well. So video as well yeah. that, you know, that we've got YouTube now, we've got, everything seems to be videoed and recorded. Um, plus things like the Berlin Philharmonic Concert Hall. Um, there's so much information there um, it, to inform you, but not to copy. <laughs> no, exactly. And that's, that is an important distinction uh, to make, especially with when it comes to video and going back to the conversation on you know, technique um, and things like that, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, imitation is the most, is this a serious form of flattery um, in, is that the right, is that? I, I think that's the right phrase, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the right <laughs> phrase. Um, but ultimately, yeah, we have to be true to ourselves. Of course, we do inform ourselves what other colleagues and, you know, the conductors of yesteryear do. Mm. Um, but ultimately we have to do it because we believe in it and we believe that is what the composer wanted. Karim, it is time for the 10 questions. And so, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I think sound that I love, um, and this is coming from my uh, Cypriot background and having spent many summers in Cyprus as a young uh, child, um, would probably be two things. It's the sound of the barbecue and mm. also the sound of the... Um, the waves lapping at the beach, certainly in the Mediterranean anyway. Um, sounds that I hate. Oh, I have to say it's probably influenced from um, a past experience where I finished uh, a very, the end of a very, very quiet, slow movement. And it, I was so happy with how it went. And there was a police siren that just started in the distance, got louder and then went past. And I was, I was, I was fuming that that happened. And so ever <laughs> since, probably the sound of police sirens. <laughs> it's amazing. The sound of the outside world coming into a concert hall is, it can ruin a moment, can't it? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I, I can remember very, very, very many occasions of either conducting or playing. And you just think, oh, what a shame. Um, my favourite story, and I must tell this um, because it just popped into my head, um, that somewhere I joined the CBSO, some of the older members of the orchestra told me this story. It's from the, the days when the CBSO used to play in the Town Hall in Birmingham, which is um, not Symphony Hall, it's a smaller building, and there used to be a, a road that um, went up to the side of the Town Hall and then did a right angles and then down the hill onto New Street. All the buses used to go down there and uh, the orchestra had just finished a very quiet ending of the symphony with Naomi Yervi conducting and a motorbike did exactly what you just said. It got louder and louder and louder and then turned the right angles and then went down the hill down New Street. Apparently Naomi Yervi stopped the orchestra as he should have done, held his pose and then Direct, basically conducted the motorbike as it went away down New Street in the concert. <laughs> which, which, to have the to have the sheer balls to do that just made made me laugh out loud. Um, 
but yeah, it, could, what a, it, it really can ruin a, a wonderful moment. You know, a church bell in the distance, you know, at the wrong moment. It just, uh, just ruins it. Um, brilliant Absolutely. Answer. And that sounds like a very, very um, <laughs> heavy thing to do from the stories <laughs> that I've heard anyway. <laughs> um, next one. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? So I am currently in the process of um, getting a PPL, which is a private pilot's license. So ah. I would go and fly some circuits in a plane. Yeah. Um, you're joining uh, quite a few previous... I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, Daniel Harding, obviously, because, you know, he's a pilot with Air France as well as, you know, being a world-famous conductor. But quite a lot of people have either wished to do it or actually are doing it. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? I mean, if, if that I have the option of choosing more than one. I mean, I, I can't imagine the number of conductors that have said Carlos Kleiber, but um, of course, you know, there is the mm. wonderful Carlos Kleiber. Um, uh, Giulini, Camaria Giulini, um, was also a phenomenal conductor. There are some absolutely transcendental um, recordings of Bruckner symphonies with Celi Bidake. Mm. Um, I mean, those are the ones that have come to mind right now. But of course, there's, there's many, many more as well, I'm sure. Kleiber makes regular appearances as the answer to this question. But he, I've not put a moratorium on him yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, he, frankly, he's my answer anyway. So <laughs> I can't put a moratorium on him. Um, and favourite current conductors? So I, as I said, in, towards the beginning of this, of, of this kind of little podcast, um, one of my formative experiences was uh, watching Antonio Papano rehearse. Mm. And I, I have to say Tony Papano because he really is um, an absolutely phenomenal um, musician. He is a singer's uh, conductor. He is also very much an orchestra's conductor as well. Um, you know, he really embodies the music and he absolutely loves what he does. And I find that extraordinarily inspiring. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? So, oh, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, physically, I would say um, conducting Tales of Hoffman, um, <laughs> that that opera is, I, I mean, I love it, but without cuts, um, or without the right cuts, I should say, it's probably about half an hour too long sometimes. Mm. And it, it is so tiring um, that you start at seven and that you really finish closer to 11 p.m. at night. Um, it really takes a great technique and a lot of, you know, yoga and massage and physiotherapy and massages afterwards um, to kind of get through it. So physically, I would say that. I think emotionally and technically, um, I had the crazy chance of stepping in for Bernard Heitink um, and the Concertgebouw Orchestra a couple of years ago to conduct Mahler 9. Mm. And I have never come across, I mean, it's the, the work is still an enigma to me. I don't know if I'll ever really understand it or confess to being able to understand it, but that, um, that work is, um, it's, it's, it's really in another dimension on another mm. level. It's, mm. it's extraordinary. Talking physically as you were about opera, the, I would say that the hardest thing I've ever done physically was uh, was opera, and I did uh, all three of the Tritigo Puccini operas at the Birmingham uh, Conservatoire, <laughs> but I did them twice in a day on a Saturday because we had a matinee and then an evening. Um, and me being me, I didn't put in a depth for my rehearsal with the Birmingham School Symphony Orchestra in the morning either. So oh. I, did, I, I, did, I did an hour and a half in the morning and then did a full Tritico uh, in the afternoon and then another one in the evening. There was a point in the middle of Suor Angelica in the evening where I thought, is this ever going to stop? And are my <laughs> arms ever going to be able to do anything again? Um, and then it got to, you know, uh, Senza Mama, and, and I, I just forgot all the pain and thought, oh, my God, what a, you know, and then you're thrown into the music again. Um, but, yeah, God, that, yeah, it, it can really take it out of you, can't it, opera? Uh, oh, absolutely. And um, I think one of the reasons that it can be so tiring is because no matter what you planned in opera, you have to be ready for something different um, because yeah. things just go wrong whether that's through somebody's direct or indirect fault things do go wrong and you have to be ready to just wait those couple of seconds which 
by the way, feel like, you know, an eternity longer or, you know, come in a little bit earlier than you expected. Um, and, and the other thing, which is purely kind of logistical, is that being in a pit and knowing that your beat, your, 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 your arms, your, the, you know, what you conduct with has to be seen by singers sometimes at the very back of a very big stage. Mm. I mean, that you and then, you know, physically having to conduct higher than you normally would if the uh, podium doesn't raise in the pit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm quite, I'm, I'm quite small. I'm not particularly tall, so that's often a problem for me. Um, that is often, it's, that is just hard work as well. Yeah. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Do you know, I thought this would be a difficult one to answer, but then I, um, I was speaking to my girlfriend about this, and um, I, I figured actually it's pretty simple. Um, slippers. <laughs> I take my really comfy pair of slippers everywhere and for some reason it just makes me feel more at home in whichever hotel room or you know um airbnb that you might be staying in for that week um really highly recommended to, to any any conductors out there if they don't do it already that is <laughs> uh, no because i think nobody's answered slippers before in 50 odd episodes <laughs> so uh, you're yeah you you win with slippers brilliant what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I would love to change the amount that we travel or mm. that we have to travel. I know there's a certain amount of irony saying that in the middle of the, the pandemic where, you know, airlines aren't flying and we're not, for the most part, not really traveling very far. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when things are in full swing, as, as they normally are, um, that is, for me, the most difficult aspect of being a conductor is turning is simply taking the plane, the train, the taxi, the bus, um, and, you know, dragging your suitcase around sometimes, which is packed with two and a half weeks of clothes, three weeks of clothes. Um, and just knowing that you have, you know, three different concert outfits in there because you simply need that. Um, it's really physically tiring. And I would love to change that if I could. Well, I think you're right in that, I, at least for the, the meantime, um, with various countries, quarantine rules more than anything else, traveling is proving to be difficult. You know, conductors all of a sudden are finding that they have to stop for two weeks in a hotel before they can work somewhere, uh, or when they get home, they have to stop in at home for two weeks. So one wonders when we'll get back to that tiring existence. Um, and in the meantime, maybe we should enjoy the fact that we're not, if we're, you know, we can manage to work. But yeah, you're right. It's 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 extremely difficult. Um, yeah. uh, especially if you're doing more than a week at a time. If you're on, you know, you're doing a, a two or three week trip. Um, and you're yes. changing countries and you're flying in between and you and you've got to take three weeks of scores with you and uh, yeah it's it's tough yeah what profession other than your own would you like to attempt well i mentioned it earlier on and <laughs> i know that it's a popular one amongst conductors i don't know why it is but um i have to say i genuinely wanted to do this long before i actually thought about conducting um going to air shows as a you know, six or seven year old. Um, but I, I would be a pilot if I had the chance. Um, and well, I hopefully, I hopefully will be, you know, I have, uh, well, quite a few more hours to go um, and a few more exams to take, um, but I'm, I'm kind of getting there. So I'd have to say being a pilot. It's the two recurring things in the 10 questions. Uh, <laughs> are, we could probably form a small squadron of conductors. <laughs> And, and I have to say, if I booked a box at, at Lord's for a day's test cricket, I could also fill it with conductors who would love to be there and enjoy a day's cricket at Lord's with me. Um, there seems to be a lot of cricket-loving conductors and a lot of pilots. So Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, wonder why. I don't know. There, there must be some similarities, but... Uh, oh, don't know what. I don't know. <laughs> some, nothing about control, that's for sure. But uh, yeah. who knows? Who knows? <laughs> If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Um, I have to say, uh, kind of on the grandma line, it, my grandma's cooking, you just you simply cannot beat it. Um, and I, I think, you know, if, if the world really was ending, then having a plate of, of traditional um, Cypriot food, um, I think that that is just, that's, that for me is world class. Um, I would also say I was very fortunate to have a, great week uh in florence last year and my girlfriend and i we dined at the most amazing restaurant um uh florentine steak 
Yeah. I think it was just, I mean, and it was, it was so memorable. I, I, I was there in the restaurant for about three hours, just, just, just taking it all in, just taking in the atmosphere. Um, so at the moment, and it probably will change in a couple of years. Those are my two things. And what would you wash it down with? To begin with, you'd need a really, really good glass of, um, of well, certainly from the Italian restaurant that we ate at house red. Yeah. Wonderful. And then I would have, um, just a shot of um, very, very strong uh, Cypriot uh, Zivania. Brilliant. Absolutely wonderful. Thoroughly enjoyed the last hour, Kerem, uh, and I hope you did, and I hope that we meet each other very soon. I hope so too. Thank you very much. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who started out his musical career as a professional trumpet player, but after winning the Donatella Flick Conducting Competition in 2004, he's gone on to be a music director in both Canada and his native France. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>